Hi, friends, and welcome to the very first episode of It Takes Heart podcast. Um, I want to go ahead and start by introducing myself. My name is Caitlin. I'm 30 years old. My husband's name is Eric, and I have a stepchild named Amari, a stepson named Liam, and a son named James. And this is our story. So, um, Basically, what our podcast is going to be about, um, we're going to focus a lot on our son, James, uh, because he was born with a heart defect. Uh, We found out when we were 20 weeks pregnant that he would be born with a heart defect. And uh, I want to just share our journey with this and how it has affected our family dynamic and our marriage and everything in between. So when I was 20 weeks pregnant, I found out that my son, James, was going to be born with a heart defect and it was one of the scariest days of my life. Uh, Up until that point, we had had a very routine, healthy pregnancy. Uh, We were going in for our 20 week anatomy scan. And the biggest thing that I thought I would find out is that um, we had just paid to find out what his gender was thinking we did not want to wait. Um, And so we had found out he was a boy. I thought, what if they're wrong? We go to this 20 week anatomy scan and the doctors say, just kidding, it's a girl. But that was not the case. So we went there and they had told us that the right side of his heart was small and underdeveloped. And I did not know exactly what that meant. And me, again, not knowing anything, just thought, well, can we give him steroids to help develop his heart uh, like you do with premature babies and their lungs? did not know anything about it. I had never heard of congenital heart defects. So that is where our journey began. Um, We were seen at St. Elizabeth uh, in Florence. They recommended that we see St. Elizabeth Edgewood, um, see their maternal fetal center there, um, and see if we can get an actual diagnosis for what this is, uh, because they couldn't exactly tell us what it meant. They just knew that the heart did not look right. We went to St. Elizabeth Edgewood, had a fetal echocardiogram, which is basically uh, an ultrasound where they specifically look at the baby's heart. Um, And they, again, were not able to give us an exact diagnosis. They gave us um, some theories that they had. Um, One doctor said uh, they believe it could be hypoplastic right heart syndrome, which come to find out later um, with another doctor I spoke with at the Children's Hospital. He said that they didn't really use that term often, but um, from what I understand, it is a thing. Um, Another doctor said it could be tetralogy of Fallot. None of these terms I've ever heard of, Uh, but the exact diagnosis that we got eventually from the Children's Hospital is pulmonary atresia, intact ventricular septum. Wow, (laughs) super scary. Um, And so soon after we found out about my son's heart defect, we also found out that I had a short cervix. After we started seeing St. Elizabeth Edgewood, they also recommended we see Good Samaritan in Cincinnati. And uh, they take on the higher risk cases um, and have a really good program there. And our first... Uh, visit there, they said, you have a short cervix. I thought, is that good? (laughs) Is that bad? Spoiler alert, it was bad. That puts you at risk for preterm labor, which is not something you want to be at risk for anyways, but especially not with a baby with a heart defect. 
basically when your baby is diagnosed with a heart defect, they know pretty much right away, as soon as they are born, they will need an operation within that first week, sometimes that first day that they're born. And to do an operation on a baby like that, they have to be a certain size and weight. Um, They can't just operate on a little baby that's too small. And so I was 23 weeks pregnant when they had diagnosed me with a short cervix and had said that if your baby comes out this early, we won't be able to save him. We won't intervene at all. We will not take any measures. We will just hand him to you and let you have as much time as you can with him, which was a very terrifying thought. Um, But I had to keep the faith and hope that everything was going to be all right. They ended up putting me on a couple medicines and putting a, um, a device inside of me to try and keep him in a little bit longer and hope and pray that he made it full term or at least closer to his due date, um, which his due date was February 17th. Um, I went on bed rest on Halloween. That was my very last day of working. I worked full time in a pharmacy. And fun fact, I had just started that job the same week I found out I was pregnant. I had been working for Kroger for about eight years. I was working in human resources when they downsized human resource people. And so they gave me the option of working their front end, which is where I started in the company, or working in the pharmacy. And I thought, well, that's different. Uh, And it sounds like a better gig. They've got holidays off, work, you know, shorter hours, close early. I'll try that out. Um, And then to my surprise, I found out I was pregnant that same week. So starting a new job the same week that you find out that you're pregnant was definitely stressful and an exciting new venture. It was a lot to learn, you know, dealing with people's medicines in general can be very scary. You can't mess something like that up. Um, That's a big deal. Thankfully, there are a lot of steps and a lot of people these medicines have to go through uh, before they actually make it to the patient. But um, the learning was very stressful and uh, terrifying for me. And um, so I was not at that job more than maybe four months after, you know, finding all of this out and being put on bed rest. But I am thankful that I had that job for the little time that I did because having a son with such serious medical conditions, um, it's nice to kind of know the background of the pharmacy and how the whole system works with the medicine and the doctors. Um, because I have to deal with that now on the customer side of it with dealing with insurance, dealing with doctors, dealing with pharmacies. It's a pain in the butt, (laughs) but at least I understand it a little bit better now. So I am thankful I had that small amount of time in the pharmacy. So I was probably about, let's see, 24 weeks pregnant maybe. I'm not sure, I can't remember when I finally got put on bed rest. Um, And then at 30 weeks, my son James tried to greet us once again. (laughs) And this time, like he actually tried to greet us. The first time it was a possibility, but 
I wasn't actually in labor. It was just a very scary day. But at 30 weeks pregnant, I went to Good Samaritan for my regular checkup. I met with my nurse practitioner and she usually checks how dilated I am, checks where the baby is, all that fun stuff. And when she checked me, she said, I can feel baby's head and you are centimeter dilated. And I had contractions also pretty early in my pregnancy. So they were treating this like the day I was going to give birth, which again was terrifying. (laughs) They took me to a delivery room. They asked me all sorts of questions. Do I want an epidural? Who do I want in the room? My husband was not even with me at the hospital. My mother was, but at the time my husband worked third shift. So Uh, Needless to say, I was praying that I would not actually have the baby that day. Um, I thought to myself, gosh, this can't be happening this quick. I'm not prepared. I don't have anything with me. Um, I don't even know how to answer these questions. And is it even safe for him to come this early? Which they had said, yes, um, it's not ideal for him to come this early, but... If he were to come this early, we would intervene and there would be a chance of saving him. So there was that. But obviously they were going to try to prevent that from happening because it was still very early in my pregnancy. So uh, they put me on a magnesium sulfate bolus, um, which they use to try to stop labor. And if you have not had this in your body before, let me just tell you, it's no picnic. Uh, I felt very sick. I felt hot. I was sitting in this room with my mother. They kept getting me ice chips and cold rags. I said, I'm hot. I'm cold. I got to lay down. I got to sit up. I'm going to throw up. Like this is one of the most miserable I've ever felt. And for about 30 minutes, they did a very high dose, which is called a bolus. And then they kept me on that drip at a lower dose for about 48 hours after that. Um, And they also gave me some steroid shots to develop his lungs uh, so that if he did come early, he would be a little safer. Um, Thankfully, the magnesium sulfate drip did the job and stopped my labor. And I was in the hospital about a week, which that first time when I was 23 weeks pregnant, they admitted me for a week also. So two weeks total spent in the hospital trying to keep this baby from coming out early. And wouldn't you know it, this kid is a prankster. So at 36 weeks, they had stopped all preventative measures. They stopped my medicine, they took the device out and they said, it's safe for him to come. So whenever he's ready, it's safe, it's fine. We're just gonna let him come. I said, well, as soon as you take this out, I'm gonna go into labor like probably the next day. He's not gonna make it full term. And wouldn't you know it, he made it 39 weeks. And I was induced. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, I'm going to punish you the rest of your life for this. (laughs) Um, But my little heart baby was born on Valentine's Day. I was induced at 5 in the morning and he came out um, just after 11. And you might not hear this from many women, but the delivery was actually the easiest part of this whole experience for me. Uh, I was in active labor um, six hours, I think, and pushing for a total of about 45 minutes. Uh, I did get the epidural, which was awesome. Couldn't feel a thing. (laughs) 
it made it really fun, but also very difficult. This was my first pregnancy, my first baby, my first labor. So I was doing what I could to push correctly, but I literally could not feel a thing. So I was using all the brain power I could to try and just push with all my might and hope that I was pushing the right way. Thankfully I was. Um, Unfortunately, while I was pushing, it seemed like James uh, was in distress. His heart rate kept dropping. So they almost took me back for a C-section. At one point when I was pushing, they said, if this keeps happening, we are going going to have to take you back for a C-section. Somebody had said, okay, we're going. But somebody, I guess, had made the decision to wait a little bit longer and see if he will come out on his own. And I'm thankful because if I had gotten a C-section, that would have put me in the hospital for a long time. Now, after James was born, he had to go to a completely separate hospital than I was in. I gave birth a good Samaritan and he had to go about 10 minutes down the road to Cincinnati Children's and be there as soon as he was born. So I got to be with him for a few minutes, but then he left. Um, so that was very difficult for me, but if I had gotten a C-section, then I probably wouldn't have seen him for a few days. Thankfully, because I gave birth um, naturally and it went well, um, no issues, I was able to leave the next day to go be with him. Um, and my husband was able to follow him to the hospital. He rode in an ambulance. They wanted him to be born in the morning if possible so that um, he would be surrounded by the doctors who were there during the day. They already had a plan for him. They took him back to the cath lab to take a look at his heart because when your baby is in the womb, they can see a little bit. Some congenital heart defects can be detected in the womb, diagnosed, and come up with a plan. Some are not diagnosed in the womb. Uh, They aren't diagnosed until the baby is a day old, a couple days old, um, or soon after they're born and they might be turning blue or having trouble breathing. And some kids are born with a congenital heart defect and don't know for years. Um, I am thankful that I did find out when I was pregnant. A lot of people have said to me, I don't know how you got through the second half of your pregnancy knowing this. Um, And I'm not going to lie, it was hard. Going through 20 weeks, essentially, of my pregnancy. The first 20 weeks thinking absolutely everything's okay. And we wanted this baby. We tried for this baby. I tried to do everything right. I took my prenatal vitamins. I drank so much water and tried to um, just be healthy, eat healthy, um, not eat anything I wasn't supposed to, drink anything I wasn't supposed to, and just do what I could to take care of this baby. He was planned. Um, and that was kind of a slap in the face to find out, you know, yes, you did everything right, but this is something that's just kind of an anomaly. Um, some congenital heart defects can be linked to genetics. A lot of them, you know, they aren't able to pinpoint it to a specific reason. Um, it's not to say that it's a hundred percent not related to genetics, but you know, they would have to spend years searching every genetic code of your child's body to be able to know for sure. Um, With our child, uh, they have not been able to pinpoint it to anything genetic, and it could just be a fluke, to be honest. And I've, I've heard so many people say it's amazing that people, like the majority of people are born healthy and normal because 
the body is so complex. So it seems like it could easily, something could go wrong while your body is developing. And that is just what happened with our James. Um, but I am thankful that we found out when we did because it gave us time to prepare, gave us time to meet with the doctors. We uh, eventually um, met with the surgeon that would do two open heart surgeries on him. One being a pioneer surgery, um, which was putting James on a ventricular assist device when he was five pounds and two weeks old. Never been done before in a baby that small where they got it and uh, got to transplant and then made it home. Um, so obviously the second heart um, open heart surgery was his heart transplant, which he got at six weeks old. Little tiny baby. When they told us he would need a heart transplant, we did not know how long we were going to wait. And um, I'm very thankful that we only had to wait a little over a month. They had estimated about six months, maybe. Um, but can you imagine birthing this little tiny baby, seeing him deteriorate from day one, um, seeing all these cords and tubes hooked up to them, and then just praying for the best. It was a really tough situation to be in. It really took a toll on our whole family. Uh, I feel like a lot of my family was in denial about what was happening. Um, a lot of family tried to be optimistic and make us feel better, but nobody really knew what was going to happen. Even the doctors, <laughs> we kind of had a plan for James's life for when he was born. But again, in utero, they can only tell so much. So when they came up with a plan for our James, that all went out the window when he was born. <laughs> um, so once they took him back to the cath lab the day he was born, they actually took a look at his heart outside of my womb and, you know, him as his own individual person and found that his heart was in worse shape than they had thought. Um, he was missing coronary arteries. Um, it was just in terrible shape. It was underdeveloped. And they had said, you know, we had originally thought that we would do three corrective surgeries to bypass the part of his heart that isn't working properly. It's not exactly a fix, but it is a way to still get blood flowing through the heart without it having to go into that area that isn't working. Um, and once he was born and they saw his heart, they said it's in too bad of condition. He's just going to need a transplant, which is not something we were prepared for at all. Even when I was pregnant, meeting with the doctor, seeing the facility, I knew eventually it was a possibility, even after getting the three corrective surgeries that's, you know, again, it's not a fix. Um, it's a temporary way to stay alive. And some people do better than others. Some people live longer than others. There are a lot of restrictions with that method, but a lot of them eventually do need a transplant. When I brought this up to the surgeon saying, well, what if he does need a transplant you know, right off the bat? He had said, that's not going to happen. I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> Little did he know, um, but Again, we tried to keep the faith and hope that through it all, he would just be okay. And this kid was so resilient. 
He was powerful and strong and he got in his ventricular assist device and was able to gain weight and get tubes removed and start looking a little healthier, a little healthier, a little healthier until he got a brand new heart, which is not a total fix either. Uh, if you don't know much about transplant, you're trading one world of problems for another. I thought to myself until the doctor corrected me, you get a new heart and it's a good working heart, you're good. However, that is not exactly the case. Um, you get this donor heart and your body knows this is not mine. So basically your entire life, your body will try to attack that heart and say, this is foreign. We need to fight it and get rid of it. So that's not good. <laughs> so to prevent this from happening, you take what's called anti-rejection medicine or um, immunosuppressants. And what this medicine does is it, you know, exactly what it sounds like, suppresses your immune system so that your immune system is weak and does not fight off your new organ. Now, that does mean that you get sick a lot because your immune system is suppressed. So you're at risk for you know, colds, viruses, cancer, a lot of scary stuff. Um, eventually, heart transplant patients are at risk for coronary artery disease, diabetes, so many things. So it's not, you know, one done, you're fixed. Um, it does come with a host of its own problems. Um, also, the medicines that you have to take to maintain your heart are also also very rough um, on your body, on your stomach, on your liver, on your kidneys. It can really tear up the rest of your body. So it's truly a balancing act. Um, along with taking these medicines, you also have to get regular heart biopsies. And for those of you not familiar with biopsies, it's where... Um, at least with little kiddos, they go in through the groin, go all the way up to the heart. They check the function of the heart, the pressure. Um, and with James, he has two stents in his heart. So they have to see the pressure through the stents, uh, see as he's growing, if they need to expand these stents, which sometimes they do, they have to go in and balloon them up um, so that blood flows easier through them. Um, but they also have to shave off little microscopic pieces of the heart to test for rejection. That sounds super scary, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, messing with the heart at all can definitely be um, off-putting. And you have to hope that your heart does not respond in a negative way to you going in there and just shaving pieces of it off. Um, and after you've gotten so many of these heart biopsies, your arteries and your veins start to get blood or, um, excuse me, scar tissue buildup until eventually you aren't able to access those arteries or veins anymore to get up to your heart. And there will eventually come a day where they aren't able to do these heart biopsies to check for rejection. There are other signs, um, but that is the most effective way to test for it right now. So to think that Eventually, they may not be able to do that is kind of a scary thought, but I do know that they are also working on a blood test to check for heart rejection too. So I'm praying that in 10, 15 years when it might become an issue that they will have just developed 
a much easier and safer way to test for rejection. Also, with heart transplant patients, a good heart transplant can last 15, 18, 20 years. Um, After that, who knows? You could get cancer, coronary artery disease, rejection. Eventually, you will probably need another one. I believe the uh, oldest person who lives right here in my home state, Kentucky, who got a heart transplant as a baby and kept that same heart transplant for their whole life. The oldest person was in their 30s, which was amazing, a miracle. Um, I would love to meet that person someday and find out what they did right (laughs) or what their parents did right to care for them and hope that I'm doing the same things right. I know I'm certainly overprotective of my baby, but you know, sometimes transplants don't last that long. While we were inpatient, I met a family who had a three-year-old who was waiting for their second heart transplant. Thankfully, my son is about to turn four in February on Valentine's Day. Uh, so he has made it almost four years with this you know, new heart. And I pray that I'm doing everything right to keep it strong and healthy and working in his body, but you just never know. And Uh, if he were to eventually need another heart transplant, hopefully he would meet the criteria. It's not just, you know, you need a new heart, you automatically get one. You have all these tests to pass. Um, You have to prove basically that you'll care for it and that you deserve to have it, essentially. Um, I know when we were waiting to see if James would be eligible for a heart transplant, we had to meet with all sorts of teams over the course of two days. We had to meet with social workers who would get involved, say, if you uh, could not care for the baby. Um, you had to meet with um, all sorts of teams and answer a lot of questions, uh, make sure that you don't have a criminal history, or if you did, or a history of addiction that wouldn't affect the way you care for this child. You have to be very strict about their medicines, what you expose them to, because again, these kiddos can get real sick real easily. Uh, Most transplant kids are hospitalized a lot for illness. Um, Thankfully, my son has only been hospitalized for illness once. Uh, Believe it or not, it was for the common cold, rhinovirus, and adenovirus. Um, He was hospitalized for about a week with that. He was on high oxygen. He even ended up in the ICU once. Uh, during that stay but I have to think that I'm doing something right if he's only been hospitalized once for illness that's not to say he hasn't been hospitalized for other things um, like following a biopsy gone wrong which some have Um, and he's also had a lot of other things go wrong but I will talk about those in another episode I'll leave you guessing for more (laughs) Um, but yeah so this has been our journey thus far Um, really just today talking about when we found out up until about when he was born and got his transplant. But, um, I'm so thankful to that donor family who decided to make the choice to donate life. And I advocate daily 
for everybody to fill out your driver's license. Go on the donatelife.net website and please just register your decision to donate life because you could save countless lives by donating donating your organs, donating your blood, your skin, just everything. Um, anything that you're able to donate, you know, live, you know, donation can also help. I donate blood all the time. Um, so in any way that you can donate life, um, I 100% advocate for that and hope to influence others to sign up to do that if they haven't already. A lot of people aren't against donating life. They just haven't officially done it legally. (laughs) So you can do that again on donatelife.net or when you go to get a driver's license renewed. um, There are multiple places that you can get it done and I 100% um, advocate for that. So uh, I'm going to leave the episode off here um, and I can't wait to talk to you guys more. So from my heart to yours, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.